Welcome to episode 5 of Up and Away. I can't believe we're already 5 episodes in. Time flies when you're having fun. This week we have bush pilot Tim Howes on the podcast. Where do I start with Tim? Well, if you've seen anything he's posted on social media, you'll know his style of flying is truly by the seat of his pants. If you can imagine the furthest thing away from what you think of as a landing strip, he has probably landed his plane there. We talk about his affordable path into aviation and how it can be inexpensive for you too, what bush flying is exactly, and what you need to know to keep yourself safe. Fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey Tim, thanks for coming on Up and Away. Mate, thanks for having me. No worries, anytime. So, I always start with this question, when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? Well, I honestly can't tell you what inspired me to get into aviation because it's all I've ever known. Ever since I was a kid, I've just been completely and utterly obsessed with aeroplanes. I mean, when I, when, when, remember when I was a kid, we used to have the old VHS tapes and at my mum's place, I used to have Top Gun and um, at my grandma's place, I had Magnificent Men in their flying machines and that was that was my videos I had at each house and I've just been obsessed with it for as long as I've ever known. Um, in terms of where my, my journey started, um, other than drawing pictures of aeroplanes constantly as a kid, when I was a scout, I got to do some air experience flights when I was probably, oh, I'd say, around the 10 or 11 mark. Then I went from scouts to Air Force cadets where I got to start doing, started with a couple of air experience flights, got my first time putting my hands on the controls of a Piper Tomahawk. Um, wanted to go that direction of the GA flying and very quickly realized that there was no way I was ever going to afford it and, um, got into gliding camps and very glad I did. Um, gliding was my real intro into proper flying, um, like really, really taking the stick and learning to fly. And personally, I think it was the best training I could have got. Um, I, I try and tell everyone who's starting to fly to start in a glider if they get the opportunity um even if you don't go through with it they just teach you so much about uh stick and rudder skills and stuff yeah stick and rudder coordination basically yeah. it's, it's so much about stick and rudder coordination and efficiency and just just being really on the ball like there's there's no such thing in a glider of the ball being you know out of the center it's it's always mm. you know you're just really on your a game all the time started there um got up to solo initially got one solo flight in and then I ran out of money again. Um, started my electrical apprenticeship after that, so there was no way I was going to be able to afford it. And um, But then I got back into gliding, but this time through the motor gliders at Byron Bay. And um, from there, I did an RAL's conversion into drifters. Um, I was working on a station out west and got to have a ride in a, in a drifter and um, – still on the way back home from out west when I called a guy by the name of Wayne Fisher at Lismore to say, hey, mate, I've just flown in one of these drifters. Do you have one for sale? He goes, I've got one in pieces on my shop floor. I said, I'll take it. And um, never saw it. Went, walked in, had a look at a bunch of pieces of a drifter. And when that was back together, he took me for a fly in it. And um, I'd already agreed to buy it at that point. I did my RALs conversion. And that's been my journey since. It looks like you got into it pretty cheaply compared to like GA and like general aviation and stuff. So. Mate, I, I think that avenue I took really, it was quite coincidental, but it really I think was the, the way to go. Um, the, the, the gliding, the motor gliders at Byron Bay, I've got to be honest, anyone who's willing to travel to do some training, I'd honestly say it's the, uh, 
I, I, I've never, it's the cheapest flying I've ever come across in Australia. It's, it's amazing and, it, and it's such a good experience. And you're getting both the training of gliding, which, as I said, I really do think is, is about the best training you can get as an early stage pilot. And, um, but then you're also getting the motor management skills of a motorized aircraft. I mean, they really are when the engine's on, they're just a GA aircraft. Um, so you're getting the training from both. It's the cheapest flying that you can do. And I actually did a deal with a fella. I, um, I did some work, some volunteer work on a fella who's, um, who was disabled in an accident. I did some volunteer work on his house. Uh, during the construction of that and lo and behold the guy who was running project managing that happened to own one of the motor gliders there so i was, I was even luckier again then because we did a bit of a bit of a trade for trade he, he was never really obligated to do that it wasn't his house but he was very generous to let me learn to fly in the plane for free use of the aircraft so that was really good for me but but even if you don't go that avenue it is a cheap way to learn to fly and then once you got that first license the conversion from there's really quite simple into raa and if you do want to go the RPL GA Avenue, you can just, once you've started, you can just keep converting through. And, um, and I do think, as I said, it's a great way to put those fundamentals together and a cheap way to do it. Totally. I think a lot of students have, you know, that worry that they might not be able to afford learning how to fly and, you know, want to know what the cheapest option is and, you know, what other options are if they sort of run out of cash as well. So, Yeah, look, honestly, I never thought I was ever going to be an option for me. Um, I, I really didn't. I, I thought it was Microsoft Flight Simulator for me all the way. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, I was very lucky. A lot of it did sort of fall in front of me, and opportunities came that that I jumped on. But at the same time, I, I you know, probably wouldn't have been able to start flying during my apprenticeship without the offer that my mate gave me. But pretty well, you know, by the time I'd finished my trade, it was definitely would have been much more of an option. Than I think I ever would have realised just by doing a bit of shopping around and looking at different options and not just going the mainstream route. Yeah. So you've got an RPC? Yeah, I do, mate. I have an RPC. And, and that's it. A lot of people seem to think, um, you know, like it's – do I've done a fair bit of flying now and most people tend to think I'm a GA pilot. But no, I'm just an RPC holder and a very proud member of um, an RAOs, a very, very proud member of RAOs. I think it's a fantastic organisation, which has really given me and many people uh, amazing opportunities. And um, so I've just got my RPC and just your basic endorsements. I've got uh, my, um, what have I got? A passenger, cross country, high performance, low performance, nose wheel, tail wheel. And, but more importantly, my favourite one is the, I wouldn't say favourite. Probably the most important one, though, I've got is my low level. Um, I think that's for doing what I do. Uh, that's essential training. Um, not always essential to necessarily have for landing where I land, but definitely essential training, I think. It's uh, it's a good thing to have. What's that uh, get you? Uh, basically, it just allows me to fly below that 500 feet for purposes other than taking off and landing, really. it's I mean, there's a lot more to it. It's worth reading up if you are going to go down that avenue. Just It's not quite as simple as I can just fly anywhere I want low. But if I've got justified reason and I can, I can go below 500 feet and um, really for me, and we'll talk, I'm sure as this interview goes on, we're going to talk about more about the sort of flying I do. But um, I guess I take precautionary, you know, um, precautionary inspections of landing sites a bit more seriously than most with what I do. So it does mean I'm spending a lot more time down low level. And it, it, I'm, I guess I'm spending, when I'm doing that, I'm, really exceeding i think what would normally be accepted as your usual um 
precautionary, you know, what's part of taking off and landing. Um, I'm down quite a lot longer making sure where I'm going to land suitable. So I think having that low level is really a good thing to have. Does each one of those endorsements, like, uh, it's like a check ride kind of thing and like a, a, a test and stuff? Yeah, each, each one is a separate test, a separate piece of training. You know, a lot of them were merged. For example, I started in the Drifter, so I um, my tailwheel, low performance, and my two-stroke really all came together. Uh, and even then, I was working on my passenger endorsement at the same time, working towards my nabs at the same time. So you don't really notice that you're doing them individually, but, yeah, each one of those was a separate test and is technically, you know, a separate piece of training. So, getting into the flying that you do, what would you call that? Uh, madness. Utter madness. Um, <laughs> no, look, so I guess it's developed so many names um, over the years. It's uh, started in uh, in the US. It's more commonly known as backcountry flying. Uh, you know, up through Alaska, Africa, and Australia, it's probably more known as uh, bush flying. Um, but I guess I would be a bit being a bit more specific i'd probably call what i do off airport flying i i don't like runways i just don't use them um <laughs> even where i take off in the morning is a runway of sorts it's it's just a clearing I, I fly from a blueberry farm and it's just a clearing in between the blueberry nets and we just happen to have a hangar there and it's, it's not level it's got side slope we've got a curved approach uh we've got machinery so you know not always the whole strip of grand total of 400 meters isn't always usable. Um, but you know, but the thing is it's, it's totally workable for the aircraft we fly. And, um, so my average day consists of taking off from the city in between the nets of a blueberry farm, landing on gravel bars, hilltops, uh, you know, paddocks, whatever we can find really that we can get permission to land on. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit different. That's pretty cool. What, um, what, point did you realize that that's what something you wanted to do in that kind of t- that flying i i guess uh when i was doing my drifter training um the guy i was learning to fly with you he was very good you know his outfield landing training was outfield landing training he, he wanted you to learn he wasn't going to um, prepare you to land in a paddock if an engine failed, failed with a running engine and, you know, getting within 100 feet of the ground saying, yeah, no, that would have worked. You know, he, his version of an engine failure training was to shut the engine off you and say, go land. Um, so that's what we did. And one time we landed um, in a paddock next to a river. And I thought, this is my, this is, this is the best thing. And we stopped, we had some lunch while we were there before we took off, you know, and it was just, we just happened to be sitting by a paddock next to, in a paddock next to a river with an aeroplane you know i thought this is awesome and then um one day later on i i came across a fella on youtube by the name of greg miller and i see this plane with tires bigger than my car skimming across the water landing on a gravel bar in all of six feet in the most amazing terrain possible and realized he's there intentionally and I thought, this is a sport? Hang on, we can, can do, do this? this? <laughs> like, come on. And I hadn't even finished my drifter training and I was just obsessed with it. And so, you know, I still had Wayne Fisher in the back and, and Wayne would be like, aim for the piano keys. I'm like, no, mate, I'm landing for that grass next to the runway. We're going to see how short we can pull this up. And Wayne very quickly realised um, 
that this is what I wanted to do. So my RAL's conversion was, you know, where other people were doing circuits, I was seeing, I was being taught how to pull that thing up as quickly as we possibly could. Um, and it's just where it's all I've just ever pictured doing with my own aeroplanes. It's just, I love the bush and I love flying. So why not combine the two? So did he teach you all of that, like flying and how to do all that stuff? He's, he's ta- taught me the basics. Um, and he taught me what was relative to a drifter. Um, as I quickly discovered, a drifter has a few little sneaky tricks it can do that don't really relate to other aircraft. Um, and Wayne wasn't really a bush pilot himself. I mean, a man has 20,000 hours in an ultralight knows the sneaky tricks it's got to give you. And, you know, so he can teach me a lot about that aircraft, but he wasn't a bush pilot specifically. So I went then, um, I actually got onto a website called backcountrypilot.org, which is an amazing website run out of the United States, uh, by a guy by the name of Zane Jacobson. And it was um, – so I couldn't find anyone in Australia to, to do this flying. Um, I didn't know anyone who was doing it. I didn't know how to get into it. So I, my wife gave me for my birthday a GoPro. I'd set the GoPro up on the side of the runway, and I'd film the techniques I'm doing. I'd put it online on Backcountry Pilot, and these Alaskan bush pilots and so on were, would critique me. And they'd give me advice, and they'd say, try this. And, you know, sometimes I'd have it on my helmet, like, oh, my, like I had a um, – Thing that goes around my head and I'd put the GoPro on that and I'd look at techniques of what I'm doing I'd put it on the ground whatever and um they would they'd talk me through what I should be doing and, and I also scorecards going. yeah pretty well <laughs> it's um and, and some of them were brutal too <laughs> um, but um then I also got in touch with a couple of the big names at the time you know nowadays we got famous YouTubers like uh, Kevin Quinn and Trent Palmer and Mike Patey well, when I was getting into it, it was Greg, Min- uh, Greg Miller, Lonnie Habitzer, and um, Paul Klaus. And I actually made contact with these guys. I tracked them down. They all had companies. I emailed them and said, look, I'm over here doing this by myself. I would love to be over there training with you guys, but it's not really an option. Can you help me? And did the same thing with them. I'd, I'd send the links of the, what I was doing to those guys, and they gave, well, would offer me an amazing amount of advice. And that's then I, yeah, I've been now also been over to the States uh, four different times training with these guys personally. So, and then, yeah, it's really just been practice, practice, practice. So most of that training was that in the drifter or? Uh, yeah, I'd say the initial training was the drifter. Um, I had most of the techniques I, I used today. I was, I was doing with the drifter, obviously the new aircraft I've, I've adjusted those techniques to suit. Um, they're not all aircraft are the same, but, uh, the techniques, yeah, I really might develop most of them in the drifter and, but I'm always learning, you know, I'm always, always developing them more and fine tuning them and find out what works for me. A lot of these guys told me things to do then, um, that were fantastic and they do really work. But in my style of flying in my aircrafts, you know, as, as I progressed, I found ways that work better for me. But it's good to have that initial training on stuff that you know is going to work before you start experimenting with stuff um, outside that realm. Did you find there was a difference between doing that stuff in Australia um, compared to what they're used to doing in the US? Yeah, very much so. Um, the biggest one being the conditions. So in the US, they've got a lot more freedom with it, obviously. Um, it's, they can do a lot more. 
with the BLM land. And, um, but also the density altitudes, probably the biggest one. See, when I was flying in Idaho, for example, you know, when you're in Idaho, you hear about guys talk every, every conversation with the backcountry pilot starts with what the density altitude is. And even my Alaskan friends, well, I haven't flown Alaska yet, which is the top of my bucket list. Um, same thing. You hear these guys talking density, altitude, density, altitude, density, altitude. Uh, I was in Idaho taking off from somewhere at 9,000 feet and they're talking about density, altitude of 5,000 feet. That's, that's, that's a lot of density altitude. But then I was thinking about it. Summer's day taking off from the beach in Australia, we can be at a higher DA than that. And it really made me think, hang on, we got to take this density altitude thing very seriously. Mm. And it's, I, I, it blows me away how much it's overlooked over here. You know, taking off from a two-kilometre runway, okay, maybe it isn't so relevant, but guys have really got to take it a lot more seriously over here than people do. The, the performance, the amount it affects the aircraft's performance is massive. Um, and, yeah, you're looking at what these guys are doing in Alaska. They're sometimes in DAs of minus three or 4,000 feet. So you, you, you're never going to get that here. You know, winter's day in Australia is still a 1,000-foot DA at sea level. So it's... Um, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing really is we're not getting the performance out of the aircraft that they are over there. And guys are seeing what they're doing on YouTube and thinking, I'm going to do that too. You're just not. It's not, just, it's not going to happen. Totally. Uh, yeah, I think the warm weather things, particularly in the north of the country, you know, it's oh, a huge, huge effect on aircraft performance. It's massive. I'm, I mean, I'm here at Byron Bay, so I'm not even quite halfway up the coast and um, seeing the difference that we get here. Uh, as compared to flying over there, it's it's enormous. Uh, so what plane do you currently fly? So I currently have a Slepsev Storch, which is a uh, stole kit aircraft. Uh, it was originally built in Kempsey, but mine's been, we rebuilt mine and uh, chopped and changed it a bit and tweaked it and really stole it right up. Um, we should so, tell people uh, what stole is. Stole, <laughs> that's they don't a good know. point. <laughs> so STOL stands for short takeoff and landing. So basically I've taken an aeroplane that's party piece was that it could take off and land at about a hundred meters and it now takes off and lands in 20 to 30 meters. Um, and basically that just uh, means the world's your oyster in places that you can go. The downside is that uh, the shorter it lands, the slower it goes. So I don't go anywhere in a rush, but that suits me. You know, this, I cruise along at 60 to 65 knots um, and everyone's like, oh, Tim, how do you put up going that slow? So, well, that's still 15 knots quicker than my drifter, so I still think I'm going pretty quick. So it's not that bad. It's, um, I love it. But as I said, it's, you know, as a day tripper and just go bombing up and down the rivers and or the coast for the day, it's just the ideal machine for the job. Totally. I, I assume it's pretty light too. Yeah, it, it, it's quite light, and, and we lightened it. You know, I mean, the the whole point of style um, when, when you're building or developing a style aircraft, it's not what what you can put in the aircraft. It's about what you can leave out of the aircraft, and that's what we did. And um, we ended up with a very big scrap bin by the time we'd re, um, pulled that plane apart and put it back together. I encourage everyone to look at Stoll on YouTube and, and see like some of the crazy, there's like world championships of short takeoff and landings, isn't there? You see this guy in like a cub or something that's like you get the tail up just from the slipstream of the propeller <laughs> and then you're in the air. Yeah, my, my tail comes up at about half power. Yeah, wow. And uh, it's on full break. And yeah, some of those planes, 
are amazing. Like there's one over there called Little Cub, which I think weighs less than 200 kilos and he's punching out 400 horsepower without the nitrous oxide on it or something like that. It's ridiculous. And he gets along at 20 to 30 knots, but he's up in the air. I think his record's like three and a half feet takeoff roll or something. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. It's, it was um, not quite a full tire rotation. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah. So what uh, maintenance do you have to do on your aircraft? And do you do it yourself? Yeah, Luke, I, I do do a lot of it myself, um, but I'm also not the most mechanically minded person in the world. So I try and do as much of it I can under supervision of people who know a lot more. Um, than I do so um, you know I tend to just do the basic oil and filter changes and you know, not, nothing too flash um, myself and my rule of thumb is if I have any doubt of what I'm doing on my airplane I'm just going to get someone else to do it um, again the joys of um, RAOs is that you're still not paying lamey expenses to do anything so generally like I, I, I pay less for a guy to work on my airplane who I feel I can very much rely on, um, then it cost me to take my car to a mechanic. You know, good. like it's just, it is a bit of mates rates. That's the joys of living in the country, you know. Um, but it's, you know, it just, I'd rather go that way. He helps me out. I help him out. And um, yeah, and that way you're not running the risk of doing anything you're not comfortable with. As I said, even if you think you know, think's not a good enough answer for me. So yeah, I'll just do the basics. Cost me very little to run that aeroplane. I, I think my plane, you know, takes car fuel. Between that and maintenance, I think realistically the plane costs me about fifty bucks an hour to run. It's very cheap. Mm, it's a great way to do it. And is there any kind of maintenance stuff that you've got to be in on top of doing the kind of flying you're doing? Like that's different to normal maintenance. Um, I think I'll probably take a lot more focus on stresses on the aircraft than a lot of people would um on the ground mainly in the undercarriage being quite honest and in things like engine mounts and so on just because you know there's when, when you're going over big holes and bumps and logs and rocks and so on the truth is the plane's going to take more of a beating than um other aircraft will but the the, the rag and tube design is incredibly strong i mean it's one of the earliest ways they started building airplanes and there's a reason why they're still doing it you know it's one of those things they got right fairly early in the piece um but yeah we just just very thorough expect inspections really is is probably what i'd take to an extra level as i said particularly in the undercarriage my aircraft's got quite big long bandy legs so why that gives it a whopping four foot of prop clearance which is awesome it also does uh gives a lot of leverage and so on for stresses on the on the undercarriage and airframe so yeah keeping close eye on that's probably my biggest thing and what tires do you have expensive ones <laughs> um <laughs> So I run Alaskan Bushwheels, uh, which I, I just prefer not to talk about how much they cost, and particularly in the chance that my wife might listen to this at some stage. Um, that no, the, the Alaskan Bushwheel is it's a lot more than just a tire. Um, so my tires are a 29 inch tire, which is I think it's about 66 centimeters high. But then those tires actually, with time, it's weird. The Alaskan Bushwheel. They say over 500 hours, it expands by 30%. Wow. So they just, you know, 29 basically turns into a 31, a 31 turns into 35, and a 31, 35 tie just gets stupid. Um, and is that because the rubber's so soft? Yeah, well, they're the only handmade tire in the world. So wow. to this to remaining in the world, and, and that's what you're paying for. The beauty of the tire, though, is they run it, my tires are currently running two and a half pound of air pressure. 
So I hit logs and rocks and just roll straight over them. So while the Alaskan bush wheel is an expensive piece of kit, for what I do, they're incredibly cheap insurance. And there's been a few times now where I could probably look back at places I've landed where there's a very good chance I wouldn't have an aeroplane anymore if I didn't have those tyres. Instead, I didn't really think anything of it. Um, so the big tyres, though, people think are an essential thing for off-airport flying. They're certainly not. Um, my drifter had 800s. My Storch, when I first got it, had 8.5s. And I did probably, you know, three 400 hours off-airport flying in, with those tyres on the on the Storch. Um, but, yeah, they but they are, if you're going to do a lot of it and go to the places I, I'm at going now, then they then I they they I do recommend them. Um, they're just as I said, they're just cheap insurance. A bit, I guess it gives you more options and it's a bit safer too. Exactly. I, I like to think any upgrade I do to my aircraft, whatever it is, I, I I've always found this hard to word, but I kind of only like to use thirty percent of it. Like say, if you give it the amount of performance increase or margin that's going to give you, only use thirty percent of that to increase your places you can go and use the 70% of it just to increase your safety margin, if that makes sense. So, yeah, my big tyres allow me to go a lot more places, but I don't still don't go to all of them. You're not, yeah, you're not like, oh, that giant, like, pile of rocks over there looks pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty enticing. That's exactly you know? Greg Miller will literally see his limit is rocks about the size of bowling balls, quite literally. He sees a riverbank of rocks about the size of bowling balls, that's still landable as far as he's concerned. As far as I'm concerned, you got to be kidding. You know what I mean? I'm still going to stick with, you know, rocks maybe a couple of inches in diameter, even with those big tyres. Uh, it's just just because it can doesn't mean I can afford to try it because I can't physically afford to be wrong. Totally. And, you know, aviation's like this in general where stuff happens and you don't know and you can't predict everything. You can sort of, you know be ready for as many things as you possibly can, but, you know, it's going to throw things at you still. Exactly. And in what I do, you've just hit the nail on the head. I think that's the biggest thing is with the sort of flying I'm doing, people need to get their headspace in and the fact that you just open yourself to a, if you think there was enough unknowns in aviation, try going into somewhere that's completely unprepared for an aeroplane. I mean, the, the, the purpose of what I'm, I wouldn't say the purpose, the idea of the flying I'm doing, though, is to stick an aeroplane where an aeroplane's not supposed to be. So it is definitely going to offer a lot of unknowns. And you might see 100 metres of, you know, even though my plane can land in about 30 metres and take off in about the same, I allow a margin out bush of about 100 because you might find a big hole halfway through that strip that means that only half of it's usable and you're not going to know until you're landed and you're stuck. Totally. That's the um, that's the built-in margin of safety. It's exactly it. With those short field landings as, as a bush pilot, what skills do you need? What kind of stuff are you looking out for? How do you set up your plane on approach and stuff like that? What do you got to think about? Well, I've got to start this one by saying very clearly, people, I'm not an instructor. So anything I say is my techniques and what I like to do. But I, what I really like people to take from any time I do anything like this is hopefully identifying to people the sort of things that they're going to want to go out and learn to do um, and don't do not do what, as I say, uh, just hopefully sort of highlight to people that there is a lot more to it and you're going to be doing things very differently to what you've ever done before. 
So, you know, typically our style approaches are going to be thing what's what we call a behind the drag curve approach, a steep approach. Um, and, and it's a hard one to explain where you're basically, in essence, you're getting your airspeed from your rate of descent as opposed to your forward inertia. Because what we're trying to actually do there is reduce the forward inertia of the aircraft. So when we get to the ground, our actual this rate we're traveling forward is as minimal as possible. And it's uh, a lot of people think then that what we're doing is flying right on the edge of stall. But again, by having what that does is actually allows us to keep our biggest margin we can with airspeed while keeping our ground speed as low as possible. Um, as opposed to what we call a drag it in approach, that really probably is where you're really flying in the edge of stall because you're coming in low and shallow. So your airspeed is matching your ground speed. So to keep your ground speed minimum, your airspeed really has to be as less uh, as small as possible. The other beauty of a steep approach is if you are close to the edge of stall there or um, in that slower speed, you know, the, the bottom end of the speed range, um, or even you have an engine issue, you do have height um, to be able to throw that stick forward and um, and get that airspeed back again. Um, very, and you've got the height and the distance to do that in. Um, what else are we doing? Other things like, for example, I like to fly every approach with a bit of slip involved, just a bit, because again, if anything ever goes wrong, we can always pull that slip out and um, and increase the, the the distance we've got to run and and get more air in front of us. Uh, not relying on that engine as, as much as possible is the go because what we really want to do, we, we are operating in areas of minimal margin. So we can't really afford to be pointing a third of the way down the runway and think, okay, well, if something goes wrong, you know, I've still got all that runway to fall short onto. We don't have mm. it. Um, I mean, with what with what I'm doing, typically I am landing at the very, very start of what's usable. I mean, to, to me, a spot landing acceptable landing distance within a foot or two of, of my aiming point not not within 100 meters you know it's uh i i was flying with greg miller in oregon um he he missed his aiming point on one spot by literally six inches it, no lie we i was i was out of the plane i had a mark on the ground where he said he was going to put the wheel and the tire was six inches from it and he was fuming to the point that he went up and did it again like that just was not acceptable um it's amazing because there's like so many variables, like even wind that could affect that. And that was blowing about, I think, about a twelve knot crosswind. Far out. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it just, but that that was the, yeah, that was the, the standard of what was acceptable for him for for the level he's flying at. You know, he's he's flying at a level far exceeding anything I'll probably ever do. Um, but that's that's the margin he for error he's, he's given himself. And um, so that's that's really what we got to do is allow our margin of errors and and our spot landing techniques. Having said that, really probably is the key. That's one of the biggest things. If anyone getting into this um, to this uh, game is is really mastering your your spot landing techniques, but don't just do it in the way of just trying to slam the aeroplane in the ground in the right spot by just happening to put the pull the power just when you're right above where you want to be you don't want to have this nose way up in the air hovering roughly in the area on the edge of stall and cut the power and the plane falls out of the sky that that's a great way to bend your, bend your aeroplane or kill yourself it really is and, and there has been a lot of planes out there particularly as the sport in the last few years has suddenly become very popular it's i'd say quite comfortably say it's the fastest growing um part of aviation at the moment i'd say 
Um, and then the, that does come with the usual, oh, I'm going to come out and I'm going to have a crack at that. No worries. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. There's a lot of bent aeroplanes doing it that way. As I said, find someone uh, like, for example, I sent a lot of people to Dan Compton and Wings Out West who trained in Alaska uh, with Jay Baldwin and um, – you know, you, you don't get better training, and he's actually been trained as an Alaskan bush bush flying instructor. They're the sort of guys. If you find people like that who can really teach you to do it right, and, and if you are going to an instructor who's teaching you about bush flying, ask them what is their bush flying experience. You know, it's uh, is that just someone who got taught by someone some bush flying techniques? who got taught by someone's bush flying techniques, and none of them have ever actually done it themselves. Mm. Um, and then have they just done? 900 meter long bush strips or are these bush or is it are we are talking off airport flying here so i do encourage everyone to find someone with the right experience and, and go out and get taught these techniques themselves the other side to it as well is you know we were just talking then about the actual techniques we use in the landing um and there's also a lot of techniques in the takeoff as well you know to minimize your drag for rot- up to rotation and things like that but the most important skills is learning to identify the suitability of where you want to land. And that's, you know, working out uh, wind speed and direction when you've got no indicators of all um, the length of a strip, surface of a strip, even down to things like before you even go low and start looking at that strip, what direction's the sun coming from? So what's the shadows going to be covering up? You know, uh, what is the density altitude on the day? What, how is your plane performing? You know, one I like to tell people to do that people don't really think about, you know, you, you can always look up on some app what the density altitude is, but how relevant is that to actually where you are? Easiest thing is fly over the spot at an area, at a height that's definitely deemed safe. And I want to emphasize before we fly anywhere lower, do your low-level endorsement and do all the checks that's going to teach you, looking for things like wildlife, uh, power lines. Power lines the biggest one. Um but then once once you've done all that and you know it's safe to fly low, low, low level, fly over the spot and do a full power climb and work out what how is my plane actually going to perform right now when I go in there in this density altitude with that wind at the weight I am. What's the best way to do it? It's to actually do it, you know. And so these are the sort of techniques. It's uh, probably more important than the technique of the landing is the technique of working out the suitability of the site and not just – you know, not just once. If you come back to a site a month later, the conditions are going to be different. There might be a log there that wasn't there doing that repeatedly and the discipline to make sure you do keep doing it. The thing is you can plonk the airplane in, but you got to get it out as well. That's the other thing. Uh, and, and planning in advance. You know, like I do a lot of early morning flying, but if I go land on a gravel bar somewhere and I've got the dog with me or something and he wants to go for a swim and I want to say go fishing or fly or swimming or something and four hours later i go to take off and suddenly it's the middle of the day my conditions are going to be very different Mm. you know generally that's when you get the shifting winds so hang on my one-way strip i'm now trying to take off with a tailwind i don't know about this you know my density altitude is going to be a lot more and i don't know what that was you know it's uh you know, I've got no idea now. I'm sitting out of range in the middle of nowhere and I've got no way of checking on my app what the density altitude is. So what's actually going on here? And uh, there's actually a, a great website um, called Mountain Flying LLC uh, that 
if you go on there, that on that website, they do have a great, a quick reference chart um, to working out the effects on aircraft. And by the time you add up surface, you know, say the slightly long grass, little bit of density altitude, there might be a slight uphill on that strip, uh, tiny bit of a tailwind, all these little things which in, individually you don't think of as being much. By the time you add them up, you will be blown away the performance effect that'll have on your aircraft. And I'll take, I just about take those numbers I've seen on that website as gospel. Totally. And then you're calling your mate with the helicopter to come and lasso you up out of the uh, spot you've landed. On that note, I just want to make a quick plug to Rotorwing in Lismore. Fantastic. If you ever need helicopter services, give them a call. Mick, you owe me a lift now. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So what kind of safety gear do you need? Safety gear. So this is another one, another one of those things that uh, talking to guys who have done it before will um, will give you a lot of advice because again, where weight's so crucial, we really want to focus on what we can leave out. So that's really all about then prioritizing what we want to make sure we take. So um, you know we don't want to leave everything out. So we want to restrict our weight to what's essential. So uh, first and foremost, before I take off, I've got a check I like to call my piss checks. A P-I-S-S, have a piss before I go and have a piss when I get back. That is PLB, um, P for PLB, and I'm a big fan of making sure your PLB is on your person. I'm going to have to ask you, what's a PLB? Ah, the personal locator beacon. Ah, yes, that's right. That was actually a question for me, not the listeners too. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, there you go. Well, you've now been educated. Thank you. So, <laughs> um, so your PLB, that's your personal locator beacon. Um, and there's so many great devices now, which are quite small. And I'm a big fan of keeping that on your person. Now, a lot of people will have differing opinions, um, and that's fine. The reason for what I, why I like to keep it on my person is there, there's, an air, there's a time after an accident, which is a shock factor, and your plane goes into trees, Uh, You climb out of that tree, you're stumbling around a bit, really trying to get your head around what's actually happened. And it's something a lot of people don't really take into account. And in that time, your plane could burn. It might be stuck up in the trees. You can't get back to it. Or the plane might be folded in half. You can't get to somewhere in that plane. And so you can't rely on the fact that you can get to your PLB. So that's why I like to make sure I've always got it on my person. Now, one side, one argument a lot of people like to say is uh, keep the PLB in the plane because that way you make sure you never forget it, which is a very good point. So what I do, though, is I keep a safety vest. I've actually created a vest with my emergency gear on it that when I jump in that plane, I put that on. So the safety vest stays with the plane because there's no way I'm driving home with it on. It's incredibly uncomfortable in the car. <laughs> um, so that stays with the plane when I leave, but I leave it on my seat so I can't climb in the plane until I've put it on. So that's my way of making sure. And ever since I've run the um, safety vest, I've never once forget the PL, forgot the PLB. Um, the next one is uh, iPad, or you might have a Samsung or an iPhone or whatever. The I worked with my analogy, so I've run with iPad. Um, and that's to put on, even if you're not using it on the day, even if it's a local area of flight, that's put on your Oz Runways or Avplant or whatever the service is that you use because generally um, they can track those. So if your phone even has a hint of phone reception, even if you crash out of range, there's a very good chance you're in range before you crash, um, they can track your course uh, through that. So that's a, that's a great point of um, tracking there that most of us as pilots will have. 
Um, so make sure you turn that on, even if you're not using it. Um, the next one is a spot, uh, spot track. Well, I, I, I run a spot tracker, um, but I'm looking at changing the inReach. But that's, that's your satellite tracker. Um, they're a fantastic thing to have. Now, people need to realize, though, that these aren't a PLB. I'm hearing a lot of people saying, oh, I got my PLB, and I put up a picture of a spot. Very, very different units work in different way. Both fantastic things to have. Um, uh, but both do work in a different ways, but also both do um, offer different advantages and disadvantages. Um, the PLB definitely out of the chopper can be tracked a lot more accurately as the rescue helicopter is coming over you. But the spot, while it has an emergency function like a PLB, you hit that button, it calls all the cavalry. Um, it works purely through sat the satellite network, has no connection by the radio network. Um, uh, but it does have that tracking function. So your friends and families, they've got your link. They can track you at, say, whatever intervals you said. I think I got mine set at 10 minutes because in the Storch, that's still pretty well the same spot. Three metres, yeah. <laughs> yeah, three metres. <laughs> well, let's not be too generous here. Um, if you're flying something like an RV, you might want to set two-minute intervals because you're going to actually cover quite a lot of ground in that distance. Um, but setting, um, putting on the track function on the satellite tracker, that's that's a more reliable tracking solution than um, than the iPad, um, but you know one does give you redundancy. Um, but having that, and I actually personally keep that in the plane, so I've got my PLB on me, track it in the plane. Uh, the thing is there as well is in an accident I might be stuck in that plane, uh, in a way you know that PLB might be somewhere I can't reach it. Um, at least then I hang the I've got bars in front of me in the um in the storage i hang that off that it's always right in front of me so if i can't get to one i can generally at least get to the other so while it might not be a plb it does have that sos function at least last one is sat phone uh because i personally think a sat phone is priceless i got an iridium um sat phone and it cost me i think 40 bucks a month i do use it a lot for work so that does help justify the cost but 40 bucks a month still isn't incredibly expensive and while my spot tracker can send SMSs and so on, and um, I used to have a spot connect before the one I got now, which could actually, you could send a, a written text. Um, if I'm ever somewhere and I don't want to call the cavalry and I just need a bit of help or I'm t I want to call my wife and say, look, there's weather coming in. I'm out bush. I'm not coming home tonight, you know. At least you can do that. You can reassure your loved ones. Or I've had it once, for example, I was out bush, I had a flat tire. I don't want to call the rescue helicopters come bring and yeah, say, hey, boys, fun. I just need – I've got a flat, you know, <laughs> but I was able to call a mate of mine fly that out, you know, fly a tube out to me. So um, that's your PISS checks, checks that I really like people to uh, – I like to encourage people to try. And then, again, you do it when you come home, uh, PISS again. Um, you know, put your PLB back in the plane, turn your Oz runways off, uh, turn your satellite tracker off, um, put your sat phone on the charge, you know, things like that. The other one I'm very big on is helmets. Now, I don't expect everyone to wear a helmet. Uh, it's up to everyone um, to decide whether or not they want to do that for themselves. However, I'm always going to encourage people to try and do it. Um, you know, I, 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 for me, helmets came in. I toyed with the idea for a while, but I don't want to spend that much money uh, thinking that I had to spend four or $5,000. Then I had five mates, various places around the world, have accidents within a three-week period, quite coincidentally. Every single one of them, the only injury they sustained was a head injury. Uh, the last one was actually here in Australia by one of my closest friends. And uh, he had he and a student on board, plane flipped over, was picked up by wash. 
um, and was dropped on its back. Cub caught on fire mm-hmm. almost instantly. Huge blaze. Now, he, was, he wasn't wearing a helmet and he very, very nearly was knocked out. Thankfully, he wasn't. But if he did his head about an inch from where it was, he would have been and both he and his student wouldn't burn to death. Thankfully, he wasn't. He was able to get him and his student out. But both uh, me and him started our research and ordered our helmets the very next day. And with a bit of research, we found helmets, which are perfect for what we want, that were bugger all um, more than a Bose A20, which you see student pilots buying left, right and centre. So for a little bit more money, um, I tell people, you know, if, if you're wondering, should I buy a helmet or not? Well, play a game of top trumps. You know, take everything that a standard headset has to offer, take everything that a helmet has to offer, and I reckon, uh, particularly with the really lightweight, low-profile low helmets with the slow-speed stuff that we're doing, probably not ideal for aerobatics, but what we're doing, they're perfect. Um, I think you'll find that the only thing that the helmet, that the headset might uh, win on is it'll be a bit cheaper and you'll be able to pump your sick tunes while you're flying. That's about it. <laughs> That's what everyone wants, eh? Apparently. So I, I just finished uh, reading the Wright Brothers biography and the first ever fatality in an airplane like powered aircraft was when Orville crashed with uh, Lieutenant Thomas Selfridge and Orville was in the hospital after that for about four months and Selfridge ended up dying from a head injury of which then they determined that if he had any kind of head protection he would have survived and that was the first ever fatality in an aircraft. Well, that says it all. Obviously, pilots are very slow learners, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> That's what, over 100 years ago? So. Well, look, hey, still to this day, I don't. is there any air forces in the world that helmets aren't compulsory? Totally, yeah. You know, even, even when they're flying in their basic piston trainers, they're still wearing helmets. Something to learn from that, I think. Yeah, I think so. I've seen some stuff online that you've got a little passenger with you sometimes. My little buddy, Clance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, my, my, my world revolves generally primarily around two things aeroplanes and my dog and somewhere in there i've got a wife as well uh, <laughs> no no clancy he's he's probably got over 100 hours up now um and he's a fantastic he's the best passenger i got he's the only one that doesn't complain i love him <laughs> he loves it what's maybe the craziest place you've landed craziest place i've landed oh it's gonna take some thought not necessarily unsafe either, just like... Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's that's the thing, actually. I, I've never felt... It's funny, you know, typically the more wild a place I've landed, generally the safer I've felt mm. because the more preparation I've put into it, if that makes sense. It's the ones that seem pretty easy. You get a laid, bit laid back and, um, you know, to be quite honest, the only incidents, if you can even call what I've had incidents I've ever had, have been at airports. So it's it's just that it's that habit of you get a bit late lax, you know. But uh, craziest places, well, okay, we, we as a passenger was definitely flying with Greg Miller, and um, again, I keep referencing this man, but he's probably the person in the sport I look up to the most, and was you know I was, I was like a little teenage girl when I got the opportunity to fly with him, and uh, flying in Oregon on um, just on the river that's his um, that's his training ground. And we went into one spot that actually I found out later featured in one of his films. And it may be about a 10-foot-long gravel bar, you know, and we're coming a curving approach. And, um, 
you know, one we got one tire skimming on the water as we're coming around the corner. The one wingtip's quite literally brushing through bush, bushes, and he's just, you know, over the years he knows what he can put his wingtip through quite safely. I'm not recommending anyone try that. I just want to put it out there. <laughs> you know, it, it, if you want to look up Greg Miller on YouTube, you'll see the level this guy flies at and the experience he's got to be doing that. Um, but we came along and then, you know, he's just pulled up on a 10 foot gravel bar. And, um, while he's too busy telling me about how he comes camping there with his wife and fishing gear and four days worth of camping gear, you know, it's, um, just absolutely blown away. And then when we take off again, you know, he still doesn't even use the whole gravel bar and he actually skimming using water for takeoff. And, um, I I've done that in the States when I was trained using water for takeoff, but, not at the speeds like he's rolled six feet, but but he knows his hydroplaning speed and wow. you know there's you can actually there's there's a formula to work out very accurately uh, what's pace that the the tire will start hydroplaning at and he just knows it so well and just you know quietly chatting away and as we're taking off we're water skiing under a tree branch and up we go and right. to be quite honest it seems extreme but I've never felt safer in an aeroplane. Um, because the thought and the prep, and this is a spot this guy's landed hundreds of times. When we were going in there, I thought it was his first time with the prep and the thought he's put into it and the planning and the demonstrated skill level. You know, there, there was, I was, I was never in harm's way. And even if anything did go wrong, we were probably flying and maybe at 17 knots. So very low inertia. I think you're, you know, you're likely at more risk going into a runway at 100 knots in an RV or something, then, then we were probably out there. Totally. I think, yeah, the thing that we keep coming back to is just the skill and the level of preparation. That's exactly it. It's the preparation. It's building the skill level up, not seeing what you see on YouTube and thinking, yeah, mate, I'm going to have a crack Let at me that. do that right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it. Kevin Quinn's actually doing a real big push with his videos from now on. He's He, he feels responsible as an influencer these days that okay well people are going to have a crack he's going to tell you what you're going to have to worry about and that's again going back to where i actually think a low level endorsement's a great thing because i find the more low level training people have the less inclined they are to want to fly low level less uh, margin for error yeah that you're going to go into a, if anyone who starts their low level endorsement is going to go over there not realizing how many things down low are trying to kill them totally speaking of uh down low um and things on the ground. You just built your own strip on your property, hey? Well, I don't know if you would call it a strip. I think most 172 pilots probably wouldn't call it a strip. But <laughs> it's perfect for me. Yeah, no, we've just recently bought a piece of land in the Upper Clarence, which I like to call my little flying playground as well. It's my favorite place to fly. I love it. I'm completely hooked on the Upper Clarence. And, um, yeah, so we bought a little of my wife and I bought a little bit of country out there. We bought a couple hundred acres and, uh, finally I've got my own strip, which I'm very excited about. And it's uh, come up a lot flasher than I was ever expecting. I just expected the dozer operator to, uh, clear enough, just, you know, push some trees out of the way that I can shove a storch in if I, you know, on a good day. But his son-in-law has a Cessna 185 just had a baby and he wants his son-in-law to bring the kid, his grandkid up. So he made it 185-able wow. with the, the right pilot, at least, I should say. The, the, his son-in-law is a hell of a stick. So yeah, it's, that's um, cool. But, yeah, he's definitely made it to a point that his son-in-law should be able to get in and I've just been spoiled rotten. How did you choose where to put it? Uh, th- th- there was one spot I could put it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like, oh, this is the prevailing wind during the, you know, where it's, you know, best place to angle this thing. You're like, no, that's pretty much the only place to do it. Yeah, no, I, 
I wish I had those luxuries. Um, yeah, no, the, the property I bought is largely under timber plantation and it's made up of ridges. So there's actually no flat land anywhere on it, um, and which I kind of like. We got horses and stuff, so it's, it's, you know, it makes it a bit more interesting. But it did also greatly limit where I had the options for an airstrip. Um, but at 300 metres long, um, you know, I use, and it's got about a oh, 5 to 7% gradient. Um, the storage pulls up in it at about 20 metres. So there's, there's going to be very few conditions out there that I'm not going to be able to fly it in. Um, you know, even with a reasonably cracking tailwind, I'll still get in there quite comfortably. And um, I've got a very good approach. Um, you know, it's uh, when you're taking off, you're taking off to, over descending terrain. So I, I think the sort of weather that would stop me from flying in that strip is, you know, I'm just a recreational flyer. I'm flying for fun, so I don't need to take off. So if it's that bad that I can't land it, to be honest, I'd rather not be flying anyway. Did you have to consider things like width and, you know, distance and stuff like that? Uh... Look, I would say most people normally would. Yes, I'd say they're definitely things <laughs> to, to, to consider. But with my plane and where we fly, it, it never really was a consideration. It's, it's an open ridge. You mm. know, there's in terms of width, there's, there's nothing around that's going to be in the way. I mean, that's what the dozer was there doing, clearing the only trees that could have been an issue. Um, the approach isn't ideal. I've got to be honest, for most people, it's a, it's a curving approach. You've got about a, um, probably about a 60 or 70 degree turn to do on while in the flare on short final. But again, it's one of those techniques, which is nothing to be concerned about if you're well-practiced at it. And, and to be honest, there's very few places I land that that's, that's not normally something we do anyway. So that never really phased me. But it, do, it definitely does limit who could come in. You know, it's, this is never going to be a – I'd love to have one of those strips that everyone could just come in and just bomb in just to say good day. But it is going to be a strip I'm going to have to be particular who comes in there. And it's going to have to be people who have demonstrated their skill to me before and proved that they can do it. It's, it's not necessarily a hard one. But it is going to be one that offers some challenges. Not like waking up in the morning, looking out at all the trees out there, and you see all the planes of these people trying to come in and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. stuck in the trees. I mean, th th there's a big, there's about a hundred foot gum tree right off the end of my airstrip, which uh, I think really is going to keep my neighbours happy because if that wasn't there, you could probably stick a cirrus in there. I mean, look, hey, you pull the red handle in the cirrus, you can stick it anywhere. But it's, um, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> but even without that handle, it'll still probably get in there um, without that tree there. So I think my neighbours are going to be pretty stoked it's there. It's when your neighbours start putting the net in the tree that, you know, you've got a problem. Yeah, that's exactly it. Also, given their new neighbours, I just found out one of them's a keen shooter. So I think that's probably my biggest risk. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a worry. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to get your short takeoff and landings when you've got all the uh, Kevlar bottom to your plane now. Yeah, I don't know. You might find that the landings get really short. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your advice for people wanting to get into bush flying? Look, uh, practice, practice, practice. First of all, seek an instructor. Um, maybe if you can, even you now I run a Facebook group called Bush, Bush Flies Down Under, which you'll probably find the majority of the people doing this um, off airport flying are there. So jump, start by jumping on somewhere like that. It's a great group too. Like it's an awesome community of people. So yeah, I, I think it's one of the better ones out there. I, I've been really happy with how it's gone. I mean, it started as 11 people trying to organise camping trips and 10,500 people later, it's, it's, it's really turned into quite the community. Um, but it's a great place to go. And then just say, hey, look, this is where I live. 
who's about? You might find there's someone who you can even, whether it's just go out and talk to them, watch them. They might even take you for a fly. You know, the typically the people who are generally attracted to this sort of flying are generally pretty cool, cruisy people and, you know, probably take you for a spin. So don't I find it don't ever hesitate to ask. Worst people can say is no. Jump on there and, and also, you know, ask all the questions. The only stupid question is the one you never asked. And one of those questions should be is, can anyone recommend somewhere I can get some training? Um, and then, yeah, so see if you can go get some specific training, some t- um, training particularly on this, on this kind, of, um, kind of flying. Again, I want to emphasize, though, ask the instructor what their experience is because there's a lot of bush flying training I see out there. I find there's probably minimal uh, training out there of guys who really, I think, can teach you what you need to know, and they're definitely out there. They're everywhere. You just got to find the right ones. So uh, ask them, ask them the right questions. As I said again, talking to people who, or who are doing the sport who probably have a fair idea what someone's experience is—that's a great way to do it. And then even when you've done your training, still try and go and fly with these guys. Like I got a fly guy, another guy with the torch with me now. He's flying with us. There's some spots he can land. There's some spots he can't. The spots that he can. He asked, he watches how we do it. He said, what did you do there? How did I go have a go? Like, do you think I just want I can have a go at? And if we say, look, Phil, it's probably stretching the friendship a bit. He'll go, okay, try the next one. And then ones that he can't, he watches what we do. And, you know, he stays in the air and he might just practice the approaches. You just get the feel for it. You won't put the plane on the ground, but just get start getting a feel for that curving approach or, you know, that slow speed or that steep approach, you know, he just starts getting the feel for it. And, and just work your way up to it slowly. Don't rush anything because you will, like anything, you, you you know, you wouldn't go into aerobatics and try a snap roll because you saw it on YouTube, would you? <laughs> well, don't go try bombing into a 100-meter um, gravel bar for the same reason, you know. Just because you think you can doesn't mean you can. Um, and that's the way. Just work up slowly. Be patient. Find a good instructor. Find a good community. And don't do it by yourself. Uh, anyone who follows me on Facebook or Instagram or any of that stuff will see rarely is my aeroplane the only one there. If you go and flying out in the bush, look at the Alaskan guys. They'll take, if there's two of them going out, they'll take two cubs. They won't go on the same plane. They'll take two cubs because if something goes wrong, you've got a mate with you, mate who can get help, possibly fly you home, fly you out parts. Even if he can't land, he knows where you are and might be able to do a food drop to you later fly with a mate wherever possible if you're going remote totally we we're talking about that on shelly's episode last week too where she's like yeah always have people with you you know if you're stuck in the outback somewhere you want people to know where you are you know to get you out that's exactly it it's um when, when we were flying when i was flying in idaho we were taking two guys out and this was a commercial flight and i was just flying with a mate of mine and um we were hauling elk and these two guys out could have all gone in one plane but again, we took two, just e- even on a commercial basis, just to make sure you know they're they're big mountains, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and a lot can go wrong. Um, so just why not play it safe? Cool. So once you've done all that and you're in the market for a plane, what kind of plane do you look out for? A lot of people ask me this, and uh, what, what constitutes a bush plane? Well, look, at the end of the day, I always say a bush plane is the plane that you can get the most out of on the day. You know, a lot of people talk about cubs. Cubs, the magic word, you know, in the world of bush flying. 
And, um, and a lot of people think you need to lean that direction, but you look what the guys are doing in Southern America and stuff with the 172s. I don't think there's many Cubs that will follow those 172s and 182s, you know, where those guys take them. Um, it's really that there's no point if you're an excellent 172 pilot and you can plant that plane exactly on the right spot every time. Well, there's not much point in you trying jumping in a cub for the first time and, um, you know, going and trying the same thing because you're just not going to do it. Um, look, I mean, it's easy to say lean towards a tailwheel. Uh, I, I, I think the majority of the better bush planes typically too tend to be um, tail, uh, tail draggers. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Firstly, strength. Um, the main gear is in the strongest point of the aircraft. Uh, you get better angle of attack. You get better um, you better prop clearance. There's a lot of reasons that steer towards a tail dragger. But also tail draggers have a lot of negatives going against them as well. So it certainly doesn't rule out nose wheels. And, you know, as I said, 182s going into RAOs, you've got your Savannas, um, you know, even little fox bats. Uh, fox bats don't have the world's strongest nose wheel, but you keep a lot of back uh, pressure on the stick. On the stick, I've seen a lot of guys that basically fly them like tail draggers. To be honest, the nose wheel's only on the ground when it's got to be, and if you handle them well, there's no reason why they're not a fantastic little uh, bush plane. Even jabaroos, they're strong as all buggery. Those things, you know, it's um they'll take a hiding. So it's the plane. As I said, it's uh, do some shopping around, do some asking around. And, uh, and also different environments, you know, like red desert country. I've got to be honest, the nose wheels can often be the, the better planes where you've got the big flat open country, uh, but you might have soft sand and tail draggers love to go on up in the nose in the soft sand, mm. you know, so work out what's better to your area and, and just know how to get the most out of that aircraft. Awesome. So I like to finish uh, every podcast with this question. What would your dream flight you could do just for fun be? You know what? I reckon I've been like one of those sport people who's probably done a lot of like done it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, done it. That's it. Um, I, I guess probably a, a more elaborate version of what I've done, and then maybe adding a bit of Alaska. Like I, I'd love to just get my hands on a like a Legend Cub or something over in the states, like a Moak they call it, which is a souped up Legend Cub. So it's it's pretty well a Super Cub on many many steroids. And um, but go up, start in Idaho, and you know I I, I did I had a great couple of days flying the Oahis with uh, Steve Henry, who's another guy you can look up on YouTube, famous for his Highlanders. I'd love to go back out there because you're just looking at the mountains with off airport flying spots, just anywhere you look. Anywhere you look is basically landable. It's like to a degree, depending on your skill. And uh, and even most of them, there's not really any trees. So even if you don't get quite right, you've got go-round opportunities and canyons to fly down and gravel bars and mountaintops. It was awesome over the Wahis. And so, you know, do a few days there and then go up into the um, up into the northern mountains of Idaho and that's more strip flying, but over the most beautiful terrain you've ever seen then maybe over to Oregon and the Pacific Northwest area and then up into Alaska and basically just like set up a base camp, like say a week or two at each spot and just have this base camp in the middle of the bush and just go completely feral for a you know, week or two at each location. I reckon that that'd be the go and, and, and have someone else pay for the fuel. That would really take, that'd really be, make a Mickey Mouse. Just, yeah. Icing on the cake. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. I probably should have started with that. There's a reason why I haven't done it because there's no way in hell I could afford to. <laughs> Well, one day, save up. That's exactly it. Well, it's been awesome having you on the podcast and hearing about your journey, you know, doing it cheaply. You know, a lot of people struggle to pay for things in aviation. It's pretty expensive. So hearing about doing all the fun flying you've been doing, but like 
relatively inexpensively has been amazing. I think most people would be even, even my plane, you know, it's uh, what it costs. You'd probably do shopping around. You'd be surprised, you know, even that little drifter I used to have paid 11 grand for that. Not much more I'm doing in my storage now than that thing wasn't able to do. Yeah. Do some shopping around, just do some looking around and uh, really look into your flight trading options. Don't just think there's one avenue. There's a lot of avenues. And, you know, look in the RAOs, jump on the marketplace and really see what how affordable things can actually be. Totally. And a huge takeaway is, you know, the experience and everything required to do the kind of flying you're doing. And it's been awesome to hear that, you know, safety is a big concern and, you know, hearing how your experiences make this crazy flying a safe thing. So I think that's important too. That's exactly it. It really is. And as I said, guys, come on out, come out in the bush, have some fun. It's a, a bush plane means literally the world is your oyster. You know, I, I spend my days driving around thinking, Oh, I could land there. You know, it's, um, but make sure you do it properly. You know, you, you've got to learn, you've got to do the proper training, uh, take the appropriate steps and, uh, and you can do it too. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me, mate. Well, there you have it. One of my goals when I started the podcast was to get more people involved in aviation and hopefully dispel the idea that the journey into aviation is hard, expensive, and at the end of it, the only option is a job at the airlines. Hopefully, Tim's story inspires you to get out there and just have fun. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe as well as write us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.